What's the difference between a white supremacist and a sewer rat? One is a vermin that spends all its time among the refuse of society. The other one is just a rat. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I have two comics for you this time around, The Amazing Spider-Man number 293 and The Punisher number 3, both of which came out on June 30th, 1987. I'm going to start with Spidey, who was priced at 75 cents, and which I have in the Craven's Last Hunt trade, the first edition from the early 1990s. The cover, which is by Mike Zeck, shows Craven holding a Spidey-less black costume, triumphantly dancing on Spider-Man's grave, while lightning crashes in the background. Out of the six covers of this series, I'd probably place it at number three, with the part one cover that I looked at last week coming in at number two, and part four's cover being my favorite. It is definitely dramatic and follows up on what we saw at the end of last issue. Our creative team is the same team as the last part, which is the same creative team for the entire Craven's Last Hunt storyline. And you have J.M. DeMatteis, writer, Mike Zeck, penciler, Bob McLeod, inker, Rick Parker, letterer. And I know that I said Mike Zeck and Ian Tetralt were the colorists last episode, and I need to clear something up. That's true for the trade paperback that I have, but I do need to give credit where credit is due for the original comic, which I don't have in single issue, but I did look up. Thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that. And that is Janet Jackson, and she colored the issue. Editorial, by the way, Jim Salakrup, editor. Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. Our story's title is Crawling, and we open with Craven dressed in black Spider-Man costume, standing at Spider-Man's grave and laughing. We then go to the streets of New York City, where a woman is running in the rain with a newspaper covering her head. She trips and something from the sewers grabs her and drags her into the sewers. She's scared out of her mind, especially when she meets whatever grabbed her, a half-man, half-beast named Vermin. Mary Jane Watson Parker is at her old apartment, waiting for Peter to show up so that they can pack. She wonders where he is, and then she sees a rat on her floor. She kills it with the heel of one of her boots and then runs away, disgusted. Craven leaps from rooftop to rooftop, dressed as Spider-Man, and then goes back into his home where he crawls into the same room where he had been fighting beasts and consuming spiders, and he drinks what looks like spider venom? or some sort of liquid, and I should note that he licks it from a dish like your cat might lick milk from a plate or a bowl. And then he hallucinates that all of the spiders around him form a giant spider, and at first he is afraid, but then he faces it. 
Vermin cowers in the sewers, seeing a picture of Spider-Man in the newspaper. The woman he, well, I think it's implied that he ate her, dragged into the sewers, was carrying. He then resolves to head to the surface and see what's there. Mary Jane goes for a walk and is catcalled by two jerks. She tells them to get stuffed. They start following her and catch up with her, but before they can do anything to her, Spider-Man shows up and beats them pretty badly to the point where she has to tell him to stop. He glances at her without saying a word and heads away, and she realizes that wasn't Peter. The book ends with Vermin crawling onto some rooftops in a paddle of Spider-Man's grave, which we have been seeing on the bottom of many pages with a rat crawling around it, and now has a spider on the headstone. Part one of this story was going to be hard to top, but what DeMatteis is doing here is deliberately writing for the trade, way before writing for the trade was a thing. So he obviously feels like he doesn't need to have a lot happen in order to really get the story moving forward from where it was. And to be honest, he wrote this as a standalone six-part story, so he didn't have to necessarily completely adhere to all of the things and all of the subplots that have been going on in the regular title. And this story does have a specific endpoint as well. So you can see where he crafted the whole of this going into it. And while the story isn't in full exposition anymore, because we've already had the major complication of the story, which is Spider-Man's death in part one, there's still some exposition to be done, at least of vermin. And we need to see more of what Craven's plan is. Now that Peter is gone, the story's perspective from the hero side switches to Mary Jane as one of the protagonists, and we get the introduction of Vermin. I like how Mary Jane is portrayed here. I like how this is obviously right after they had returned from their honeymoon, and therefore hadn't even moved everything into Peter's apartment yet. Furthermore, I like how, while she's obviously worried about where Peter is, she's still self-assured enough to not just sit around and pine for him and take some initiative. The reason she's out of the street late at night is because she wants to see if she can find Peter, because he's usually webbing around the city. And she doesn't really get scared of those two guys until they're literally right on top of her. I like her as a character, to be honest. Vermin, I'm a little warm on. I don't know how much I don't know much about the character, except that in the introduction to the trade paperback, Demetrius says that he created him a few years earlier, and I guess he's some sort of half man, half rat. At this point, I'm not sure what the point of him being in the story is, although I'm sure that we'll get more clarification on that in part three. As far as Craven is concerned, we get to see more of his descent into madness or whatever is going on that started with his eating spiders in part one. Here. He laps up spider venom like a cat. He has this crazy trip where he's being consumed by spiders to become the spider. And, well, I, I still don't exactly get it. Although it does remind me of the madness that you find in Francis Dolleride and Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. Like, where he literally has to consume the Red Dragon painting. And if you haven't seen read that, I highly recommend that book. It's, an, it's a phenomenal uh, novel. Uh, and I also recommend the Michael Mann adaptation of Red Dragon, which is called Manhunter, and it's from about 1986 or 87 or so. 
Um, really, really good stuff. I highly recommend it. I know there was an Edward Norton starring uh, adaptation of Red Dragon in the in the 2000s. I've heard that's actually very good as well, although I haven't really seen it. Anyway, Craven's plan seems to be to pretend being Spider-Man in order to not only kill his enemy, but destroy him and everything he represents. It's actually a more thought-out plan than we usually see from villains of his sort. And I like how he converges with Mary Jane toward the end and really beats the snot out of these crooks to the point where she has to stop him. And then she realizes that wasn't her husband because Craven interfered because he wanted to beat some people up and this is sort of, this is what Spider-Man does. He has no idea who Peter Parker is. So he has no idea who she is. So it's just complete coincidence that he happened to be there and she happened to be there. And I think, honestly, it's done realistically because it's it's subtle. She she never says Peter or anything like that to him. She sees how brutal he's being. She tells him to stop it. He turns, he looks at her, and he leaves. And that's enough to her to realize it's not him. And it makes total sense. After all, she's his wife. She would have an instinct for knowing him. I mean, maybe that's just from my perspective, who's been married long enough to, you know, have instincts in terms of the person I'm married to. I do have one question, though. When he leaves that scene, we see Craven as Spider-Man crawling up the wall of a building. Now, am I mistaken, but shouldn't he not be able to do that because the wall-crawling ability has nothing to do with the costume, and it's actually one of Spider-Man's powers? I guess to no-prize it, we could say that Craven had something that would allow him to mimic the wall-crawling power in the suit, especially since it seems that this is his suit and not one he stole from Spider-Man. In fact, he never even took Spider-Man's mask off last issue, suggesting that his obsession with the spider-identity thing is so far gone. He's not interested in Peter Parker. He's not interested in destroying his life in that way. He's obsessed with this sort of mastering this, this being, this Spider-Man being. And I think that's well played, actually. Mike Zek and Bob McLeod are, again, excellent, and they're at the top of their game, and I really can't add to what I've already said. They make Craven as Spider-Man look like he's bulked up and not as lithe as Peter Parker is. Furthermore, they really get the brutality of that scene across very well. Overall, this story is holding up to be as good as I remember it, and I'm looking forward to covering part three in a couple of weeks. Right now, though, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be back with The Punisher, number three. Stick around. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. 
Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. The Punisher number three has a title of The Devil Came from Kansas, and the credits are as follows. Mike Barron's story, Klaus Jansen art and color, Ken Brusniak lettering, Carl Potts editor, Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. After leaving Bolivia at the end of last issue, Frank Castle has decided to drive across the country. He's in the small town of Marion, Missouri, under an assumed name, and he's looking to buy a house figuring he can lose himself there for a while. As he speaks in the office of a realtor downtown, he notices that the bank across the street is being robbed. He runs to his van, gears up, and then goes after the robbers. They have a firefight in the streets, but the crooks get away. Frank chases them in his van. The cops follow, and Frank pretends to be an FBI agent to get them to not shoot at him. At one point, the robbers throw a grenade into a cop car, And Frank realizes that these people are way more armed than they should be if they're just robbing a bank. He picks up their radio on the scanner and finds out that they work for someone who is named the Colonel. He chases them into the woods where they seem to lose him. One of them sits up in a tree and tries to pick him off, but Frank gets the better at him and holds a gun to his head and then begins interrogating him. The colonel is Joseph Fryer, U.S. Army retired, and the guy gives him a speech about how the country was founded by white Christians and how they need to plan the overthrow of the banks and the government, which are run by Jews, in order to finance the new American revolution. Frank also finds out that the colonel operates out of Sherrill, Kansas, through a real estate office on Main Street. Frank heads back to his van, gets on his motorcycle, blows the van up, lamenting that it'll cost him $500,000 to replace it, and then he drives towards Sherrill, Kansas. He camps out overnight and then arrives the next morning where he has a conversation with the colonel about getting some commercial property that is off the beaten path. He says that he is in the business of specializing vehicles, bulletproofing, etc. The colonel takes him on a tour. And Frank says all of the right things. When they get to where the colonel's forces are headquartered, Frank pulls out his gun and then finds himself surrounded by the colonel's men. He turns the tables on them by throwing a bag full of rattlesnakes at one of them and takes a couple more out. The colonel flees and Frank punishers up. The colonel then appears holding an Uzi and the two of them exchange fire. Frank heads for a caterpillar dirt mover and pierces the gas tank, letting it spill onto the ground, and then he uses the casing of a headlight to catch some and leave a trail going back to the caterpillar. Once he sees the colonel standing near the gas, Frank lights a match and the trail of gasoline lights up, ultimately setting his adversary on fire, narrating, Now he's a real colonel, a southern fried colonel. They say those friars cook up the best. I like mine. Extra crispy. Okay, aside from the silliness at the end, this is another solid outing from the Mike Barron, Klaus Jansen team. And it's a good one. It's a good one and done story, actually. It continues from the previous issue a little bit because at least we know why Frank is in in the Midwest instead of New York because he's left New York a little while to clear his head. And there are moments in here where you get the feeling that he's a little tired of things, maybe even tired of himself. 
He actually does mention that a person could lose himself in a place like Marion, Missouri. And when he's camping out in the woods between Marion and Cheryl, and by the way, that's a fictional town in Kansas. I actually Googled it to see what the driving distance was since Missouri and Kansas are right next to each other. Anyway, when he's out there, he narrates, 600 miles later, I pull over, every bone vibrating. Beef jerky and good fruit for dinner. Good for the digestive system. Snakes. Have to watch out for rattlers. They like to crawl into a warm sleeping bag. Funny. I'm tracking down Marion's bank robbers and I can never go back there. Criminals are my life. I've conditioned myself to react. My compulsion is stronger than my will to live. Can I quit? Do I want to? And then to drive home the point, he hears a twig snap, pulls his gun and yells, FREEZE! But it's only a raccoon. All of this is done in black and white and yellow, by the way, to simulate night and the light of the campfire, which is one of the reasons I really enjoy Klaus Janssen's artwork on this book. But what makes my what makes this my favorite scene in the entire comic is that it's a nice personal moment for our hero. It's not overwrought with melodrama. Plus, it's it's almost a very Batman scene. And I like how Baron is drawing that similarity, even though it might be inadvertent. Criminals of my life. I've conditioned to myself to react. My compulsion is stronger than my will to live. Can I quit? Do I want to? I can picture Bruce Wayne having the same exact narration box. In fact, I took a picture of this panel, texted it to Stella, and she was like, is that Batman? And I was like, no, guess. And so it, it really, and and, I, and granted, there are differences between the Punisher and Batman, but there's certainly enough similarities. And this is kind of fun seeing it played with a little bit. As for the rest of the issue, the whole Frank on the road thing is working well here. And you have him coming across a situation that was actually becoming more prominent in the late 80s and early 1990s. The Colonel is the leader of a white supremacist group, but it's not like the KKK. In fact, it's like a number of the militia groups that started to rise up in that era. The way that this guy is outfitted reminds me of the group that would have a government standoff in Ruby Ridge in 1992-1993 or so. And if I may recommend two episodes of The American Experience, the documentary series on PBS... Uh, you should watch first watch the episode on Ruby Ridge, and then watch the one on the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, Ruby Ridge, the Branch Davidians at Waco, the Oklahoma City bombing, they all happen within a couple of years of each other. And while they're not directly connected in that, you know, the same person wasn't, or the same people weren't at all three, Timothy McVeigh used them as, used the first two as motivations for his own actions. And those two documentaries really do a great job at showing this subculture that has popped up around it. Uh, the Oklahoma City one especially is, is excellent. And if you have the PBS app, you can, you can probably stream it. I think it's available for streaming. Otherwise, just see if you can find it uh, online or on, on your TV somewhere. Anyway, back to the comic. Barron's doing a great job at showing uh, this white supremacist militia. It's the underbelly of society that we really don't see, especially those of us like me who grew up in the suburbs. The colonel is right out of one of those groups, and Frank takes him down for the criminal that he is. And I suppose you could say that Mike Barron is making some sort of political statement here, but I don't know how controversial political statement of 
quote, groups planning to overthrow the United States government in the name of promoting a master race is. I hate to assume, but I'm going to assume that your typical liberal or conservative is going to look at Frank's actions and on some level be like, well, good. Especially considering that they're actually guilty of criminal acts. Bank robbery, murdering police officers. I think Baron does a good job at balancing macho action movie with realistic character motivation instead of making this some sort of BS macho fantasy or making it some preachy, crazy, like, thing about politics of some sort. All right. You heard me chuckle at the Colonel Sanders thing. It was funny. I like the action at the end. Baron has Frank make mistakes, and he shows his resourcefulness. Because he had this bag of uh, rattlesnakes packed under his coat. Something that was foreshadowed in that campfire scene. And he chucks it at the bad guys. Then there's the gas line in that classic light the match. The path of gas will blow up the engine tactic. It's right out of a movie. I mean, but it totally works. I mean, it's it's great. And after such a great two-parter with the drug cartel in Bolivia, Baron and Jansen have a lot to live up to, and they do very, very well here. And that'll do it. Almost. Because I have a physical copy of this comic. And that means letters and ads. We have David P. Stevenson of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, who writes a long letter to Punishing Males, which is the name of the letter column. Joanne Spaldo is your assistant editor, by the way. He's saying he wasn't expecting from the much from the debut of the Unlimited series. Uh, he said, here was a writer I'd never heard of, backed by someone whose inks were always first rate, but his pencil artwork left something to be desired, collaborating a character who's been presented in many incarnations as much as a mush-brained, one-dimensional, shoot-em-up, dull, dull, Rambo, Claude. But the first issue of The Punisher is any indication of things to come, you have a reader for life. All right, talking about how it was this brilliantly conceived action sequence. Uh, the dialogue was refreshingly believable. The script lean and fast pace. And he thinks it was a great tie to the the caper to one great to tie the caper to one of Frank's friends from Nam. He says uh, the art's very good. Klaus Jansen has created an art and color style that is gritty without looking slapdash. The villains are powerful enough to be exciting and human enough to be interesting. The Punisher is great. Um, he says, uh, and then they 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 mention that the book is actually published every six weeks and uh, they said they'll they'll start running the sale date at the end of every issue. I think this eventually went to monthly. It's kind of interesting to me that it was published every six weeks but I guess because it's a newer book I don't know. I don't know what the what the rationale behind that was. Uh, David P. Uh, that, sorry, that was Kevin Patterson of West Bloomfield, Michigan. David P. Stevenson has a short letter saying, I've just finished an official comic book. No, it's not The Avengers of the Fantastic Force, not even Daredevil. It's The Punisher. All right. Tim Dwyer of Overland Park, Kansas. Loved it. Uh, found his replacement for Frank Miller on this character. Chris Conrad of Marietta, Georgia. It says you do a great service to The Punisher by not portraying as a traditional superhero he functions outside of costume as well as in it 
And as a character, he's had much more potential infiltrating and destroying criminal organizations than he does hanging on the street corner and beating up muggers. Kevin Hall wants to cross over with Daredevil, and you will in the future, Kevin, in the months ahead. And Ronnie Adkinson, he uh, he, criticize, he he criticizes the art. He says, The book looks like it was thrown together the day before the due date. The Punisher looks stiff and rather fat. His face looks carved out of stone rather than drawn, and his eyes are poorly done and too close together. The story was very good, but it was hard to distinguish the Punisher from other characters in the book. I know you won't print my letter. That means you're going to print it. But I like. I would like to ask Mr. Jansen to give the Punisher more detail. Marvel's my favorite comic company. I expect the high standard of art in the Punisher that is in all the other Marvel comics. Thank you for your time. And they said, uh, you're welcome, Ronnie. And even though we might not agree with all your comments, we appreciate you taking the time to fill us in with your thoughts. Please let us know what you think of the next issue. Um, and I actually like their <laughs> comics. So. But those are the letters. Uh, ads, we have another chocolate fun for everyone uh, anthropomorphic M&Ms. This time they're playing baseball, and there are free baseball player cards in six packs of M&Ms. There is an Oxy Zit Remedy. Everybody wants something they'll never give up. Okay, different Zit Remedy than that. There's uh, Oxy Zit Cream Zittles thing. It says we have Exits. Pimple's so embarrassing you want to leave the party, and blimple, a pimple so big it feels like it covers your entire face. And there's a whole line of oxys, um, oxy uh, products for that. There's a Forgotten Realms uh, thing talking about how it took them 10 years to create, recreate the world, create got Forgotten Realms, and it says the copy is on the 3,651st day we rested. Uh, funny enough, you wouldn't have done that because there's leap years, but let's. No, I'm not going to sit there and, and pick apart an ad like that. Ooh, American Comics. This is an early American Comics ad, and but it is advertising hot comics. Uh, there, let's see if there's anything in here. Uh, Adventurers, the hottest new comic of 1986. Prices continue to skyrocket. A fantasy adventure team book that introduces eight new characters. And the first print of number one is $15. Uh, Dark Knight, number one and two are going for $7.50 each. The second printings are going for $7.50 each. The Nom is out. Um, number two is a $5 book at this point because it was scarce. And I know that did tend to happen because of the way that, uh, the way that Marvel would underprint second issues. And that would happen for years too. Second printing of GI Joe number two is $10. Cause at that point, I want to say that was like a $40 book GI Joe number two in the first printing. Cause GI Joe number one first printing was like a $25 book. Back in 1986-87. I'm not seeing anything. There's a Punisher illustration. X-Men and the Avengers. Uh, even even Robotech by Comico. Mile High Comics has its usual ad. There's a comic dealer thing going on here. Comic book conventions. The Drawing Comics Kit. 
a lot of the same ads. Ooh, Mr. O is making his O face for Olympic prizes or cash. This time, Pat, I think I'm going to take the Academy three-person dome tent if I sell 34 items. The household battery charger for 12 items. Ooh, a Snoopy telephone for 17 items. And light-activated chubbles. That's a bear, guys. Not anything dirty. 15 items. We have the same uh, subscription ad, cheaper by the dozen, that I've already talked about. Bullpen Bulletins has a profile on Larry Hama. And talking about possible deals in terms of the uh, movie and TV deals that might come out of the fact that New World Pictures just bought Marvel at this point. And the back cover has that Here Comes the Fudge Striped Chips Ahoy ad where you ruin your comic by cutting out all of the Chips Ahoy cookies and creating a flip book. And that's it for this episode. Join me in a week when I will take a look at G.I. Joe number 64 and Marvel Age number 55. Until then, you can check out the show notes on popcultureaffidavit.com. You can go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit, or you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Until then, thanks again for listening, and take care. <laughs>